0: Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we are here with number 39 on AFI's top 100 list, 1964's Dr.
1: Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb.
0: Exactly, the subtitle that is one of the longest I think I've heard in
1: a while. Yes.
0: Ethan, have you seen this film before?
1: I have. I actually studied this film uh, at Texas A&M when we were both there. Oh, what class? I took an uh, upper-level undergraduate course for graduate credit uh, with Dr. Ann Mori. We did apocalyptic film. I see.
0: I also studied this film at Texas A&M, but for a different class. Oh. I did this for military history.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, so I think maybe we're best off if you just give us a plot synopsis and then we'll dive in.
1: Alright, now this plot synopsis is a little bit all over the place because this is a story with a lot of twists and turns, so uh, just here we go. Dr. Strangelove is the satirical story of a nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia. When the mentally unstable General Jack D. Ripper sends his aircraft on an attack mission to Russia, he sets off a string of actions that push both the United States and Russia towards something worse than nuclear war, towards a doomsday situation. Ripper believes that the Russians have used fluoridation of the water to weaken the American people, hence his delusions." In the war room, the president and his men, including Buck Turgidson and Dr. Strangelove, who's an ex-Nazi, debate what their options are. Due to military protocol, the planes heading for Russia can only be contacted through a secret code that only Ripper himself knows. During discussion with the Russians, the president learns that they have a doomsday device that cannot be disarmed and it cannot be stopped once triggered that will be triggered, of course, by a nuclear attack against Russia. The device will cause what they call a doomsday shroud over the Earth that will destroy all human and animal life for a period of about 100 years. Meanwhile, men try to storm, that is, United States Army men, try to storm Ripper's Air Force Base as his British exchange officer and second-in-command tries to ply the recall code from him. Eventually, the advancing force makes their way onto the base, and Ripper kills himself, but the British Mandrake, that's his second-in-command's name, figures out the recall code himself. They recall all but one plane, which has had its communications equipment destroyed, While the Russians attempt to shoot down the plane, the Americans discuss how the human race may live on despite the doomsday device by hiding in mineshafts for... 100 years. As Strangelove advances a breeding program and some other questionable ideas, his bizarre Nazi outbursts become more and more frequent. And as Major T.J. Kong, the commanding officer on that final plane, manually releases his bomb, Strangelove rises from his wheelchair, able once again to walk. The film ends with images of exploding bombs while the song We'll Meet Again plays over.
0: Did they refer to Russia ever as the Soviet Union in this film?
1: Uh, I don't I don't think so. I think they only called it the Russians or the Russkies.
0: Yeah, because it's definitely the Soviet Union. But yes. I think we only hear them say Russians. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Maybe a political thing. I just noted it when you mentioned that they're in this nuclear standoff with the Russians. When in fact they're the Soviets. But they are the Soviets, yeah. Ethan. I have a pivotal scene for this film.
1: Tell me what the pivotal scene is.
0: I think the most important part for this film at its core in that a viewer can understand it for what it is, is at that moment where the president calls the Russian premier. They get on the phone. Yeah. Premier Kiss off. And (laughs) they get on the phone and it's just this like hilarious conversation it's hard to explain. Maybe it's best if we just take a listen.
1: Let's just listen.
2: Hello? Uh, hello, Di- hello, Dimitri? Listen, uh, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good. Then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is... um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of... well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes... To attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. They will not reach their targets for at least another hour. I am... I am positive, Dimitri. Listen, I've been all over this with your ambassador. It is not a trick. Well, I'll tell you, we'd like to give your air staff a complete rundown on the targets, the flight plans, and the defensive systems of the planes. Yes, I mean, if we're unable to recall the planes, then I'd say that, uh, well, uh, we're just going to have to help you destroy them, me.
0: Okay, so you see what I mean, right? They're <laughs> just kind of these silly little quabbles while also talking about, nuclear annihilation right so we get the absurd writ large here and i think that is the maybe defining moment for this film in understanding it for its own intent
1: yeah i mean i i think in choosing that scene you really have encapsulated what's what's going on here right this is such a serious situation that is reduced to uh you know the president and the premier having a debate about like whether they call each other just to say hello like yeah th- this idea that you know th- there are all these t- just meaningless tiny squabbles or like ridiculous desires to uh cling to i guess to country and to you know military might um and all of that, while what's on the table is the destruction of the human race.
0: Yeah, and I think on top of this, or maybe encapsulating all of this, is just a pervading sense of pettiness. Mm -hmm. You've got both of them saying, well, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Well, I'm just as sorry as you are, Dimitri. We can both be sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You're not more sorry than me. Okay, I'm not more sorry than you. And it's very much just, I think, saying how politics is just
1: pettiness on a grand scale yeah and and you know this film is a lot more frightening today than it was four or five years ago when i when i first saw it uh because there is a bit of a i mean this is satire right and the idea that there that there's politics down to like this this insane phone call uh that that are that are driving it you know was a lot more absurd not that long ago but right now in this political climate with the kinds of leaders that are uh in charge it, it, it's this is this feels a lot more closer to reality than i would certainly like
0: it feels like we're living the satire now
1: it i mean it really does it, it it really does
0: and i think in 1964 it would have felt very similar as well but sure. I think when we both saw it, as you mentioned, that feeling was not quite as intense. And maybe even in the 90s, it wasn't as intense.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So I think we've kind of not come full circle, but we've returned to a certain point on this. What would you would call it a scale or chart or graph? Right. And I think our sentiments are more closely aligned to what the contemporary audience for this film would have felt as well.
1: Sure. I think there's been, at the very least, a, you know, in the in the 60s, let's see, 64 would have been Johnson, yeah, right after uh, Kennedy. And I think there still was a, a sort of, this is all pre-Nixon, right? So there is still a trust in our leaders in a way that I don't think we have today. The, you know, I think there was, a, at the very least, despite all the sort of political differences, I think there was an understanding that, like, Kennedy and Johnson even if they were making, you know, if you were on, if you were politically aligned against them, that you had trust that they were, you know, looking out for everyone. And I don't know that, and, and, and that they were in some way above some of this deep, deep pettiness. And I don't think we have that assurance today, uh, unless you're of a particular political uh, persuasion.
0: I see. I think that's fair. And,
1: and I think there is something worth noting here, at least politically, the sort of understanding of Kennedy as a younger man, a Catholic, right? Uh, versus Johnson, who is well known for, his, for, for the Johnson treatment, right? He was a strong, um, perhaps too strong in some ways, uh, leader, right? He muscled people around and forced people to do what he wanted. Um, the president we get in this film is not Johnson, very, very obviously. He's uh, meek, weak, uninformed, uh, at times unsure, uh, and, and ultimately appears out of control. Well, not appears, but is out of control of the of the military. He of, of the men around him. I
0: saw something on IMDb trivia, which I you know, take it with a grain of salt because you get some facts. I'm putting scare quotes around these that you think like, well, okay, now how is that you know verified or anything? But it is said on this little bit of trivia that. The president is modeled after the opposition, the running opposition to Eisenhower, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I don't even remember the name, but take that for what you will, I guess.
1: Yeah. No, I think that that may be worth considering for sure. So, Ethan, I have a thesis for this film. Oh, give it to me.
0: So I think as far as anti-war satire goes, this film is a successful one is able to skirt that line between absurdity and terror, comedy and unmitigated tragedy. I think people turn to Catch-22 in a different Mm -hmm. medium, of course, for thinking about a film like this or thinking about war satire in a way that does that delicate balancing act. Mm -hmm. But I also think that, you know, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be this high on the list, right? We're at number 39, really getting close to the top. Uh or number three on AFI's Top 100 Comedies.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I remember being more fond of this film the first time I saw it, and I think I compartmentalized it as being very close to Catch-22. My reading Uh of Catch-22, which I'm sure I've mentioned here on the podcast, was one of those things I felt like I had to laugh at in order to avoid crying, Uh which I think is really in line with the intent of that book. But watching this film again, I think, you know, it's funny in places and certainly seems like Peter Sellers is hilarious in this one with his three different characters right? and they all work so well, but I'm not sure I could get behind its placement on the list. I don't think it's as funny as it maybe it once was. Maybe that's just because we feel like it's closer to home today than it was in the past. Or what? What do you think about this?
1: Well, you know, I watching this film today, it, it, you know, in two thousand nineteen, um, I felt a lot more aligned with your reading of uh, Catch twenty two, where like it's so ridiculous that you you just have to laugh at it, uh, and and I think what I'm laughing at is is the fact that like this this just doesn't feel out of the realm of of the possible or the impossible, or it feels possible is what I'm trying to say, right? In that you have, you have leaders that, that are unsure of what's going on, that have had things hidden from them that are easily influenced, um, that don't have a plan and can't, and can't act, right? It, it just feels very, very close to home. We're in the midst of a, of a government shutdown with no end in sight over, something that feels quite silly to many people. It's hard to have faith in a government that has been continually investigated by itself since day one, right? It's, it's it, This film, I just was looking at it going, oh, this was so much more absurd five years ago, and it feels so less absurd today.
0: So maybe that's why I'm having my understanding of the film and how that differs from yours is... As I think I've mentioned a couple of times, I try to be apolitical in that I try to distance myself from sort of the daily news reel and try to, I don't know, maybe I find it too depressing. I definitely just have this non-engagement policy right now with politics. And so I think I see this as art and I think, sure, it's valuable. I see its strengths, but I don't see the level to which it's been recognized for it.
1: Well, and and I guess if we if we want to think on the level of thesis statements, uh, you know, I think that this is a film that tries to expose not only this sort of absurdity of the arms race, uh, and and just the sort of um, the absurdity of of mutually assured destruction and uh, absurdity of nuclear war itself, and and the mutually assured destruction. On top of the fact that like this is a this is a deeply uh, critical film of the military and of sort of military uh, procedure in such a way that like you can't stop things that are, are insane or that people are pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing for things that are in, insane right to the point where it, it comes down to not being about protecting people the nation uh, or any of that, it comes down to a show of, of force and the, and, you know, and races, right. When I say race, I mean, uh, in terms of like the arms race, because by the end, when they're talking about like, how are they going to set up the, the world so that we can survive this? Uh, it, it becomes a question of like the, the, uh, Oh, what the, what do they say exactly? It's like the, uh, basically the bunker race, right? Like we can't let them, that's not exactly what he says. Yeah, I can't remember the exact thing either, but it's like, it's pretty much the cave race, right? The ca- yeah, the cave race. Like, we have to make sure that we are, you know, and, and even the Russians, the Russian ambassador who's down there in the war room, uh, which I'll note, there is no fighting allowed in the war room.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a quote uh, I, I picked as well.
1: Right. Uh, the. Russian ambassador when they're basically when they basically ask him like why why did you do this and he was like well we didn't we didn't know if maybe you had something and we didn't want to behind want to be behind on the doomsday race like to the point where like the it's just it's just a, a show of power it's just a show of might it's just to be first it's incredibly petty
0: well also explicit in that is it's a race to our own self-destruction right right We're- our own finitude engineered by ourselves.
1: Right. We are deeply invested in, you know, or at least these, these men, right. These powerful men, uh, are invested in being the, about, about racing to the finish line. And the finish line is, is our destruction to the end. Um, and so the idea of mutually assured destruction Gets sort of thrown out the window, and it's just destruction. It's not. It's not even about mutually. It's just destru- destroying everything, being able to destroy everything.
0: Well, on that happy note, Ethan, do you think we should turn to our three questions? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so, what do we owe this film?
1: Well, I, you know, I think that there is. At the very least, something owed to the very iconic shot of uh, of Kong riding the bomb down. I think there's something about this satirization of the bomb, right? Of of nuclear war uh, as something that's that we can, that we can kind of laugh about to an, to an extent. You know what I mean? When when, when I think of other sort of post war you know, movies about you know nuclear war. You get things like you know Japan's Godzilla, which is this dark, dark film about you know what we've done to ourselves and uh, you know the sort of monster we've created. Uh, we could even look to sort of zombie apocalypse films of uh, of the last you know uh, fifteen years that are quite often the narrative has shifted away from you know the George Romero a meteor comes to earth or whatever or magic happens to you know, we we crafted a virus in a lab that will bring us to the end. And even those are still very serious films for the most part. And I think this film takes all of that and says, like, we're gonna we're just gonna lampoon this to the farthest degree.
0: Yeah, and I agree, certainly the image of Slim Pickens riding the bomb down right. which I think the bomb he rides is high there, right? The one that's yes. labeled high there. So he's riding high there down to whatever target they could get to that they've picked because they're running out of fuel. So it's not even a really meaningful strike. It's just, we're given this mission. We're going to hit something with this bomb. Right. And so it's meaningless even in its own right. But I think that image has perpetuated itself in culture. I don't know how many times we've seen that satirized Mm -hmm. in not only the very successful cartoons. We've talked a lot about, you know, the Simpsons have satirized a lot of, Films and shows like this. I think American Mm -hmm. Dad's another big one. I think Bob's Burgers is getting in on the game. So we Uh see those a lot in the, I maybe call that sort of ground level cultural exchange. But you see it in other places, right? You see it in other films. You see it in other shows. It's not just this. I'm not trying to say lowbrow, but let's call it base level exchange. Sure,
1: sure, sure, sure.
0: I also think the Peter Sellers playing multiple roles. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we owe something to that, right? It's certainly not the first time he's done that. And I think the reason he was cast in this film is because he had done it with the previous one. Yeah. And so he was successful with that, and he's very good at it, clearly, as we see in the film. But think of Michael Myers. Yeah. Think of
1: Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I I think that there is absolutely. This is one in a lineage of films that that do this. And, And it does it well. Uh, cause I think, you know, if you didn't know that Peter Sellers was playing these different roles, you, you might not be able to tell, uh, I would have asked Olivia, but she fell asleep, uh, at the very beginning of the movie. <laughs> so, uh, that tells you about how she felt about it. Uh, but yeah, you know, th- that, multiple role thing is, is so interesting. Plus those, those roles that he plays are, are three very different kinds of roles, um, which feels very Mike Myers. I'm I'm glad you pointed that out.
0: Even the sort of skull cap where he's the president, right? Yeah, the holding president, and then he's the Mandrake British exchange officer, and then of course mm-hmm. he's Doctor Strangelove. Which, you know, knowing that it was Peter Sellers in each of those characters, I still had difficulty identifying. Yeah, him in that.
1: he does a he does a great job. Uh, and, and each of those characters is so distinct and so uh. I don't know. In- they're interesting characters. They truly are.
0: And I think it's really his performances. And Evidently, he had ad-libbed a lot of his lines or improv a lot of his lines.
1: Mm-hmm. I think he's really holding
0: this movie together. Yeah. Which is both praise of
1: it, but also maybe a little bit condemnation of it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that to an extent, and maybe this is the case with satire in general, um, and maybe we can think about this as we move along here, um, through the list but it, it is hard to I mean this is only an hour and a half movie it's not mm-hmm. very long and I think it's because you can't sustain the sort of absurdity that happens in this film for, for much longer and so you need characters like Peter Sellers three different characters to you know literally hold it together to keep it going or else it just devolves into into i mean i I had trouble putting together a plot synopsis for this because there's a lot of small teeny tiny things uh, but when you really get down to it you know the united states accidentally attacks russia uh, essentially and russia has a doomsday device the united states tries to back it up and not do that and that's the story
0: yeah it's like there's only so much you can do with that single thread of satire.
1: Well, and I think that, I think that that's because at the end of the day, what this film is criticizing is an idea, a concept, right? Um, You know, something that could happen, which, you know, and and the concept is pretty straightforward, right? Like, will we destroy everybody with our desire for power and, and greed and, uh you know shows a force or will we not i mean that's the question of this film right
0: yeah the stakes are incredibly high but they don't feel like it because of the satire and we should mention this is based on a book yeah but when kubrick read the book he made it a satire right it was more of like a traditional action drama tension yeah thriller of thriller but then you know he rewrites it basically for the film so yeah, I think that's important to note because we're not getting typical action movie plot points because they don't really have the same roots as they would. Sure. So maybe let's ask our second question.
1: Yeah. Do we care? Um, I, I think we do. I and I think we do partly for reasons I've already kind of uh, uh, outlaid here, which is to say that you know it's we're at a, we're at a political moment that is is hard to write. I mean, it's stranger than fiction sort of, sort of shit, you know? And so watching this feels so prescient with, you know, the sort of misinformed, weak, uh, set of leaders that are just only bumbling through for their own gain, whether they be Russian or American. Um, although I think perhaps today we think of the Russians, uh, far less as, uh, you know uh, bumbling uh, drunk atheists and more uh, i mean if you think about vladimir putin right as a calculating uh ex kgb you know j- almost james bond villain and and this sort of drive just for for money you know the, because what the, what the arms race is about is is capitalism right it's making money and showing off uh the you know the military industrial complex is about money um, and at least in the American government right now, there are people out explicitly to make money. Uh, you know, they they came from corporations. They were pulled from corporations and put in charge of, of government roles. And so it's scary to see Turgidson talking about like how we can come out on top here because we have to have, you know, the, we've got to win the arms race. We've got to win the whatever race, but da and that sounds like some you know, that sounds vaguely similar to a lot of what people in the in the government, in the top levels of the government are are saying right now.
0: And to further that connection, I think Desadsky, the Russian ambassador, mm-hmm. when they talk about the doomsday machine, says they did it because they couldn't keep up with the capitalistic production. Right. America's always gonna build more guns. And so they couldn't win that, right? So they built the thing that would wipe the slate
1: effectively. Right. It was it was cheaper uh, and easier, and quicker to to do that, versus trying to keep up with capitalistic production. So,
0: to give you my answer <laughs> about whether or not I care about this film, I think the answer is still yes, for all the reasons you've enumerated, but to reinforce something I said earlier, I don't think I care about it to the extent that the AFI cares about it.
1: Yeah, I, I may be with you. So, let's turn
0: to our third and final question, Ethan. Sure. Does this film hold up?
1: You know, maybe and maybe it's because of all these you know this sort of political climate we're in i laughed a lot more at it than i did the first time around i also sort of could anticipate some of the jokes i sort of i had a better grasp of what was going on um and it and it's a film that looks good it looks good uh it's in black and white perhaps for a reason perhaps to hide uh some things that wouldn't look quite so good in color and, and it is funny if you know the jokes, if you can kind of catch them, they're quick. It, does it hold up in the sense that a modern audience could pile into a theater and and it would have commercial success today? I, I, that I'm less sure of because it's so straightforward in its satire.
0: But I think that's maybe its strength for filling theaters, right? I think for all the mm. reasons you've been championing, I think, yeah, I think this would be commercially successful today, yeah. I think you kind of have to have it established as this was true of 1964, it is true of 2019. Yeah. I think you have to have it as a re-release, right? I think a re-release would do really well.
1: Yeah, I think maybe you're right.
0: So, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. I also think that it's it's visually very easily held up. I think black and white films hold up a lot better than films in color for some odd reason.
1: They do, I, you know, and, and I think... Again, especially with films like this that have, you know, some some special effects uh, in them, uh, or, or even uh, King Kong, right? It, I think that medium does hide some things. You can do more things with that than you would with early color. Some of those early color films were very ambitious, uh, and it, that, you know, we've come so far since then, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there is, I think, some there is uh, something in that medium, in the black and white medium, that does that. And black and white films just have a sort of air about them, you know, if they're filmed on 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 good film, right? They've been preserved well. Uh, they they look crisp. They look good, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think the rest of the film holding up, you know, the non visual
1: side. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is peak Kubrick. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. I still think that. Uh, Clockwork Orange? Yeah, I
0: still think Clockwork Orange is my favorite of his films. I also haven't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, so keep that in mind. But I think this is not Pete Kubrick. I think it's good. So largely it holds up, but, you know, I think it just falls short of its own given place on the list.
1: Yeah, you know, just to compare it to Clockwork Orange, Clockwork Orange asks us a big question about the human condition. This asks us a much more political uh and sort of national question right and i think that 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 sort of set a theme well i guess there's another argument to be made that it of course it is about universal human condition shit because it's about us all destroying ourselves But, but i but i think that clockwork orange takes us out of time and a little bit out of place um and and asks us to consider you know what what free will is whereas this is much more about americans and russians doing things or people in power you know in american and russian governments doing things that don't always make sense if does that make sense am i or am i just rambling i don't
0: know no i agree you're making sense I think the best place to leave this is to look forward to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And certainly the other films on the list, which we'll return to in two weeks, we have upcoming The Treasure of the Sierra Madre.
1: Ooh, that'll be fun.
0: So until then, I've been Matt Bizzell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers.
1: My spoilers! I can walk! There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bezell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bezell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at BeccaTheKnight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com/spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening and please tune in next week for more spoilers.